Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, everybody ready? One, two, three. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast wherein two lady scholars talk about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Neil Barnholden. Today we have a very special guest joining us in the Witch Please studios. The winner of our sign-off contest, Neil. And along with Neil, we'll be discussing the third film in the Harry Potter series, 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Saith IMDb, it's Harry's third year at Hogwarts. Not only does he have a new defense against the dark arts teacher, but there is also trouble brewing. Convicted murderer Sirius Black has escaped the wizard's prison and is coming after Harry. Ooh. And now exciting stuff, right guys? Hey Hannah, do you wanna do you wanna tell everybody about your voice so that they know why you sound so sexy today? You want me to explain? <laughs> I've just decided it's time that we uh, change the tone of which plays up a bit. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering from a little bit of uh, late spring laryngitis, either that or I was screaming so loudly at the NDP victory last what? night that I lost my voice entirely, one or the other. Who knows which? 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 I, my mind has already been blown. This is what it's like every time we record, Neil. Wow. <laughs> just really, you really get to see the magic happen. Wow, you need to release these uncut. <laughs> They're like three hours long. <laughs> we should also mention, since we like to set the scene about where we're recording, yeah. um, whereas usually we're recording in um, my sort of shitty office. <laughs> my um, sort of shitty apartment. <laughs> uh, today we have the great pleasure of recording um, on campus at the University of Alberta in the CJSR recording studio. Yeah, this is mainly my fault because I uh, fucked up and left the microphone at home. I brought the recorder because I wanted to upload some audio recordings that I did at the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban screening, it never even occurred to me that I would need the recorder to record this session, <laughs> which is why I didn't bring the microphone. And so I got here to campus and we were like, great, where are we going to meet to record? And I was like, oh, holy Mary. Oh, this is going to be a live, no audience episode. <laughs> just see how many please. people we can yeah. gather on campus and we'll just shout our opinions about Harry Potter at them. <laughs> Yeah, so as a, as a result, uh, with a little bit of um, rapid-fire volunteer becoming and the, the graciousness of our friends at CJSR, especially uh, Chris Chang and Phillips, um, we are here uh, recording in one of their glorious studios. It's really nice. The mics are real big. The table's shaped like a star. It's really it's awesome. I'm in so over my head. <laughs> I know. Actually, Neil, this is how we record every week. <laughs> you, you could absolutely have told me that. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So <sighs> let's start things off with professor time with Marcel. This is the segment in which we talk about adaptation theory. Um, so this is a particularly exciting moment because this is the film adaptation that really takes a significant departure from the from the books. I have flagged a handful of things in Linda Hutchins' second edition of her uh, theory of adaptation published by Rutledge. I won't read the whole thing, obviously, but you should definitely read it and study it and uh, learn from it forever. There are a couple of things that I found super useful in here. She is talking a lot about the different types of adaptations and the reasons why people adapt different types of texts into different mediums. And she actually has a quote in here from Christopher Columbus, who is the director of the first two Harry Potter movies. And uh, here's what it says in the book. The more rabid the fans, the more disappointed they can potentially be. As Christopher Columbus, director of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone 2001, put it, quote, people would have crucified me if I hadn't been faithful to the books, end quote. So, somebody named Christopher Columbus shouldn't make crucifixion jokes. <laughs> it's super it is really just, bizarre that his name is Christopher Columbus. No, I know. Oh my God, it's so great. Um, and yet when I, when I read that, I thought, well, that makes so much sense because those first two movies adhere to the books very, very tightly. Yeah. And I think that they're able to do that because those first two books are relatively simplistic. They're fairly short. But once we get into this third book, it's it's not actually that much longer, but the depth and variety of narratives that we have happening in the story are, are quite significant. And so the actual movie adaptation would need to do a lot of cutting and splicing and transforming the story. So I thought that this would be a really useful time to talk about some of the different ways that we can theorize adaptation and some of the different ways that we can think about adaptation when we're talking about the transition from novel to film. So Linda Hutchin is particularly interested in the way that film adaptations are vilified especially when those films are um, adaptations of books and when they're adaptations of, of fairly beloved books. So she gives a series of moralistic words used to attack film adaptations in literature. Uh, so this is a list here. She, quotes, she actually quotes this list from uh, McFarlane in 1996. Tampering, interference, violation, betrayal, defamation, perversion, infidelity, and desecration. Oh wow! Wow, <laughs> so interesting. I, I really never thought before about how strong the term "unfaithful" is. Oh yeah, as an adaptation. Yeah, yeah. But Chris, Christopher Columbus. I guess <laughs> I know. And right? when Christopher Columbus pointed out when he used the language of crucifixion, <laughs> that actually seems to be pretty. Appropriate considering wow. the way that people yeah. talk about it, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. People feel pretty heated about their their filmic adaptations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't care about anything that much. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that Hutchins suggests, uh, she borrows from Roland Barthes and suggests that when we want to interpret an adaptation as an adaptation, what we should be doing is thinking of it not as a work, but as a text. So a plural stereophony of echoes, citations, references. Uh, and this is sort of key here. Although adaptations are also aesthetic objects in their own right, it is only as inherently double or multi-laminated works that they can be theorized as adaptations. So it's only thinking about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the film, in relation to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the novel, that we can really think about this as an adaptation. Okay. One 
other main thing that I want to talk about, and this is uh, the particular way that we think about film adaptations. So one of the things that Hutchin talks about is how when we have a novel, we're being told a story, but when we're watching a film or a television series adaptation, uh, we're being shown a story, so things will necessarily need to be different. And uh, so what she says is, quote, To tell a story, as in novels, short stories, and even historical accounts, is to describe, explain, summarize, expand. The narrator has a point of view and great power to leap through time and space and sometimes to venture inside the minds of characters. To show a story, as in movies, ballets, radio, and stage plays, musicals, and operas, involves a direct oral and visual performance experienced in real time. So these are just some things that I was thinking might be interesting and useful as we start talking about the way in which uh, Alfonso Cuaron develops and transforms the story of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban for the film. Yeah, and that's really appropriate to what we, um, you know, in our ongoing focus on um, the narrative unreliability of Harry Potter as a narrator mm-hmm. and the way that films can't represent that unreliability because they're sort mm-hmm. of outside. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what Hutchins talking about there, the way that the the narrative perspective in the books can reside within Harry's mind, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas in the films they can't in the same way. Or they don't. I would say probably there are films that do a pretty good job of working with an unreliable narrator, but that's not what's happening in these films. Um, But what really struck me on watching this is that it felt like the first of the Harry Potter adaptations that's deliberately filmic. Yeah, That is, that's actually taking what you can do with film and exploiting it to create atmosphere, Mm -hmm. to make a commentary on the narrative, to, to actually add value to the Harry Potter book rather than doing what is quite boring in Christopher Columbus's adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? There's not much yeah. to talk about when you're actually talking about film. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, oh boy. <laughs> it's, Hannah, I believe you described it as a fever dream. I think I said yeah. it was an acid trip. I can't remember which one I said, <laughs> but it felt like both combined. I was watching it late at night in a hotel room and was like, I feel like I'm going insane as I watch this movie. Yeah. It is so... It's so stylized. And I didn't realize until about maybe 20 minutes in, as I started to go like, what the hell is happening in this movie? And so I looked up, despite the fact that I'm not supposed to do any research, I did mm-hmm. look up who the director was on IMDb. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. Because Cuaron makes insane movies. <laughs> the next movie he made was Children of Men. Yeah, and he had and the one after really? that was Gravity. And before oh, wow. he made this, he made Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. So I I was actually under the impression for a really long uh, long time that Guillermo del Toro did the third Harry Potter movie um, mm-hmm. because he was actually supposed he was scheduled to do it and then he pulled out and so then Alfonso he, Cuarón did maybe it. Maybe they're the same person. They might be the same. They are person. friends. I can confirm that. <laughs> this is why you're here, Neil, because we, like, have no idea. <laughs> we were just making shit up and not looking it up. Not no, looking I, it up. In all honesty, I'm not at all surprised yeah. to find out that he was involved. I think they do have an association that goes back yeah. several decades. Yeah, it's but that aesthetic of, like, yeah. let's see how crazy I can yeah. make a movie yeah. is like, oh, yeah, 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 I see what you're doing yeah. here. 
So, Marcel, you, I think, might have some uh, some extra <laughs> perspectives to share on the film since you actually went to a live screening that Neil and I missed. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is an organization here in Edmonton called Accio Books or Accio Books. I have always thought that it's pronounced Accio, but everybody else pronounces it Accio, and so I'm willing to go with the crowd on this one. But anyway, th- with the assistance of the Edmonton Public Library, uh, they have been doing Harry Potter film screenings and... Uh, to come to see the film, you just have to either bring a donation or bring a book, and the the books go to elementary schools. If you would like more information, I would suggest that you Google search Accio Books, Accio Books Edmonton, or, you know, something like that. Do some research, because we're not allowed to. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so just this past weekend, they were showing Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and uh, our two wonderful fans and friends, Rebecca Blakey and Sylvie Vigne, picked me up to make sure that I was able to get there on time, which I really appreciated. And so while I was there, I was able to interview a handful of people. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Caroline. Yeah. I'm Kat. Hi, I'm Natasha. I'm Ashley. Hi. I'm, Hi. <laughs> I'm Yara. I'm Veronique. Hello. <laughs> I'm Marisha. Nice to meet you, Marisha. Likewise. Can I can I interview you guys? Yeah. Is that okay? Um, yes. I would love that. I consent. Okay. I consent. Yes, absolutely. That would be a thousand times yes. Remember the last time that you interviewed us? That was so fun. I only interview <laughs> Sylvie and Rebecca. <laughs> I have no other interview subjects. Just going off of what you were just saying about the grunginess or the dankness. I've I've seen the film so many times. I've read the book so many times. It's my favorite book in the series, and it's fantastic. Um, but I think part of the reason why they went really kind of grungy or darker is it's the first one, though, where we kind of start seeing that kind of switch where the crazy people or the ones who don't seem very trustworthy are actually the most lucid or with-it characters. You look at Trelawney. She's absolutely insane. Um, but she's the only one who really can tell him the truth at that one point. Do you two want to weigh in on your opinions about this movie and how it relates to the books? (laughs) Um, I think I like it based on the fact that it's kind of like their last, like, foray into, like, childhood things. But it's also, I feel like it's it's problematic in some other aspects. What did I think about the movie? I don't know. It's pretty cute, which is just the the surface level way of looking at it, I guess. But it used to be my least favorite movie because I loved the book so much, and then I turned on the movie, <laughs> as one does. Um, and now watching it, I like it a little bit more. I've forgiven it for its flaws. I hate that in this movie is when they started putting them in muggle clothing because it drives me mental because they're not supposed to understand muggle clothing and now every single kid is just rocking jeans and (laughs) zip ups all over the place. (laughs) Uh, One of the really interesting things that I learned there, so while we're talking about Mm -hmm. um, Alfonso Cuaron and uh, and his um, directorial style, um, one person was explaining to me, well we can listen to the clip here. Um, J.K. Rowling and the director used to like clash over in this director specifically because the director always wanted to like go further with like the magical element of it so like the one example she cited in this interview was the toads that were singing in, in the choir 
the director originally at the very end wanted the toad to like open its mouth and then the camera would like zoom into the toad's mouth and then there would be like another toad inside playing like a tuba or something. Why? Why? Right. And so it was like because oh it would be this really funny bizarre thing. Realistic for the world like. But then yeah, I mean, I've never seen a cat play a tuba. What is the purpose? I may have said it wrong, but it was something to that effect. So J.K. Rowling's response to that was like every every magic magical <laughs> element in this universe has a purpose and there's a reason behind it and he and so the reason she like put her foot down at this like ridiculous toad <laughs> instrument thing was because it just didn't make sense when I was watching it, the thing I said out loud was, when have they been rehearsing? It's the first day of school. Exactly. Moreover, <laughs> Crab is in it? Or is it Goyle? I can't tell the difference between one the them. two of them. But like, like, what's one he of doing them in the choir? I know, yeah. I know. Like, who? what bully, like, goes to a choir part-time? And also, I'm, they're singing double, double toil and troubles. Do they know about Shakespeare? I was guess, he a muggle? I mean, they don't have literature class. Do they know? So I don't know how any of them would is it in muggle studies maybe 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 you study shakespeare in muggle and, studies and was shakespeare a muggle you don't know maybe he's a I wizard yeah who knows i mean his plays are pretty good but, but also, are they magically good i feel no. like actual wizards and witches reading macbeth would have a pretty different take on what right? happens in it. exactly <laughs> yeah the takeaway is that it was bananas and and Rowling was like, absolutely not. All of the magic in this magical world has a logic to it. That's bananas. And there's no reason to have a frog inside of a frog playing an instrument. That's ridiculous. Like, stop making my book so crazy. Yeah. But then instead you get the compromise, which is this choir of witches and wizards singing a song while just holding some toads. <laughs> yeah. And the toads aren't singing. The toads are just also there. It's like, what is the purpose of that toad? Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I was really curious about this. Long, even before before winning this contest that brought me here um, when when Rowling made those comments about the possibility of a, of a Wiccan student at Hogwarts and yeah. she said that she didn't think that that would fit with the way that magic works in the books and for me I think that raises a lot of questions about how magic does work mm-hmm. I don't I mean you've touched on this several times before in the podcast but it's so um, inexplicable, can but you, in a different way. It's like this internally consistent. I don't know. That's strange. Can you tell me more about this business of the Wiccan student at Hogwarts? I don't know. What you oh, mean. there, there was. Uh, uh, it was in the context of the recent um, Rowling's recent comments that there was uh, a Jewish student at Hogwarts. Oh well, we haven't found that student yet. No, oh, I, I am anticipating a future Jew watch. According to oh, our, um, oh, oh. our one of our delightful listeners, um, the Jewish student appears for the first time in Book Four. Interesting. Mm. So. Well, giddy up! I can't we'll wait. Be watching. But as she periodically is, Rowling was asked. Um, if to clarify something about the mm-hmm. sort of incredibly dense and detailed world of Harry Potter. And and so she did. And then I, I think as a follow-up, someone had asked if there was a Wiccan or pagan student at Hogwarts or if she mm-hmm. could imagine one. Um, and she said that it, she ruled it out on the grounds that it wouldn't be consistent with how magic 
is presented. Yeah, I mean, Rowling's yeah. Rowling's magic is is like fundamentally different from. I shouldn't say fundamentally, but like departs in really interesting ways and really um, glittery ways mm-hmm. <laughs> from like pagan magic and Wiccan magic and um, like actual historical records mm-hmm. of magic. Yeah, and yeah. she's she's made a lot of public deliberate efforts to distance herself from any of those histories, right? Like at yeah. another point, somebody asked her if she's um, if she herself has ever practiced magic or if she believes in real magic, and she was like, "Oh God, no." Yeah, and she's she's attempted to claim that witches and wizards exist within a Judeo-Christian world, yeah. hmm. and that their magic somehow fits into a Judeo-Christian belief system. That's interesting. I mean, I guess that makes sense because they celebrate Christmas I and guess. Halloween. Well, they all speak Latin, right? Yeah. That literally yeah. their powers are all just speaking Latin. Yeah, hmm. so maybe they're just like Catholics. <laughs> Catholicism is a little bit magical. Well, and so, Mm. like, Orthodox Judaism, Hasidism is also mystical. So there's, Mm -hmm. like, a lot of magical offshoots of Mm. Judeo-Christian religion. So it's entirely plausible that somebody who is maybe more versed in religious histories than we are can be like, absolutely. No such thing as anybody better better (laughs) versed in the history of religion than us. It is very... I, I mean, I do think that there's a point in Rowling's observation that her version of witchcraft is very unlike any sort of pagan or uh, or Wiccan mm-hmm. yeah. sort of system. Yeah. Um, as part of my own research, I did read a book about witchcraft in the ancient world. And yeah, it basically involves a lot of, you know, animal, human sacrifice, mm-hmm. sort of very bodily, kind of very polytheistic sort yeah. of system. And it's very clear that that's not what's going on at Hogwarts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, her books are fantasy rather than historical realism, right? So that also, <laughs> it also really? makes what? a lot of sense. That's <laughs> <laughs> not... These things didn't actually happen in 1992 or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. the 90s. I also want to point out that we have strayed so far away <laughs> from our conversation about about the movie. So let's let's return. What movie? Um, one, one of the earliest <laughs> notes that I took about this movie, and actually the reason why I wanted to talk about this movie is because I recently watched all eight movies in a very short amount of time, and the third movie is the first one that feels like a real movie. Yeah as distinct from a sort of sub-adaptation, yeah. I think. And actually, that comment from, from Christopher Columbus kind of clarifies a lot of why <laughs> it's not very imaginative. Oh, yeah. It's not yeah. very distinctive. Yeah, it's really not. There's no sort of sense of, of for example, how the magic works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and the, even the, um, in a lot of my notes, I, I took about the directing style. Yeah, Quaron's directing style, I think, is very sort of extravagant and stylized, oh, stylistic, yeah. stylized, mm-hmm. and it's very sort of out of the ordinary, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So I, th- oh. I thought this movie really stood out. Yeah. And I think there's... It sure yeah, stands out. Very, yeah. Well, and, and I wonder if maybe that's why this is... So many people, even people who um, people who I talked to at the, um, at the film screening um, and other people as well, this is a lot of people's favorite film adaptation, mm. which I find really surprising because I hate it so much. I, I like, also hated it. Hated it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I finished watching it, and I was like, that was viscerally unpleasant. It's <laughs> a really gross movie. I mean, I liked it more than I liked the first two, but that's because sure. the first two are nothing. Yeah. yeah. And at least in this movie, there's, like, something to have an opinion about. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I don't even think the first two are 
it's hard to even object to anything in them that wasn't yeah. just in the books. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or it's hard. It's also hard to like anything about them that wasn't just in the books. Yeah. Okay. So this movie, this movie is very beautiful. It's mm-hmm. very beautifully shot. All of my problems with the movie are all sort of. You can put a pin in those and just talk about the fact that it is an extremely Mm -hmm. visually appealing and, like, it's a really sensual movie. The way that the film uses time as, like, a filmic trope is really, really interesting. Yeah, you have all of these fantastic recurring images of of Mm -hmm. clocks and time Mm -hmm. pieces that are sort of traced through the different scenes. Yeah, and even the way um, that, like, seasons change Mm -hmm. and how we're sort of we're given these visual cues that like time is omnipresent. So like mm-hmm. here's now there's snow and now the like with the whomping willow and that where all of a sudden it's like yeah. coated in snow and then it shakes off the snow and it's springtime. And yeah. yeah. And similarly to the way that you're incredibly <coughs> aware of the passing of time, you're also much more aware of space mm-hmm. yes. than you are in the first two movies, right? Hogwarts is such a bigger world in this movie. There's so many more sets. There's so much more sense of the relationship between the different spaces surrounding the castle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you go outside of the castle and then get to see it from above. You see the lake. There's Mm. the bridge. There's more scenes of the forest. Like, there's just... It's just... You actually have a sense of how you're moving through the space of the magical world. Yeah. I I thought it was really interesting when there's that one tracking shot towards the very end of the movie that moves through the courtyard with the fountains up through the clock down that hallway into the infirmary mm. and I thought that's that's one of the first times I think in the series of movies where I feel that Hogwarts feels like a single place or yeah. a single location because you actually yeah. see how these different settings are related to each other mm-hmm. and I thought it was just remarkable to think oh if you go outside of the infirmary walk down a hallway you're in the clock tower, you can look down the clock tower at that fountain, beyond that is the covered bridge. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really remarkable actually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we'll give you that, Quaron. You shot a beautiful movie. It's bananas. It is absolutely bananas. <laughs> um, it's also really deliberately like, when I say that it's filmic, I mean, like, it's metafilmic. Like, it draws attention mm-hmm. to itself as a filmic artifact. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. the way that that's the most clear to me is its frequent use of, okay, if only one of us were a film scholar. What are those the cuts called? I have a degree in film. The camera yes. closes in? It's an iris in. And then, is and it then an, an iris, iris out? out. Okay, yes. so oh he God. uses... Neil has a degree in film? <laughs> done, done, done. <laughs> Where I do. Have you been for the last episodes? <laughs> you need somebody who understood how movies work. Why do you like those episodes? <laughs> We're just like, I don't know, cameras. So no, it, it's perfectly. Uh, re- reading a film like a text is totally. I mean, adorable. <laughs> Precious. Stop mocking us. No, it's Neil. To, it's totally valid. It's totally valid. <laughs> Neil has retroactively lost the contest and has to leave now. <laughs> well. So the iris in and iris out, yeah. right? Which he uses repeatedly, which yeah. is... And there are other moments, right? Like the moment where um, Lupin turns into a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the, the moon 
in reflected back in his eye. Yeah, yeah. the zoom right into his eye yeah. and then right back out again. Yeah, it's the, so the, interesting. The really overt zooms, the long, long pans, yeah. the cuts between scenes that are so artificial seeming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's a way of making you as if you were incredibly aware yeah. of the way that the fact that it's a film is shaping your experience. It, yeah. it is so rare to see Iris in or Iris out shots because it it's such an artifact of silent movies it's mm-hmm. such it stands out so much and i think it's so interesting that this movie basically has them at every act break yeah yeah it's yeah. so strange i felt like the movie as a whole had a really sort of nostalgic feel to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the whole the whole scene where Lupin is a werewolf feels like a 70s b horror movie yeah. to me yeah. very deliberately Right? Like the way his transformation is represented feels so much like it's drawing on these these sort of histories of film, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this, this is Quaron taking this content and then trying to do something with it yeah. mm-hmm. that is actually about the fact that he's making a film. Yeah. yeah. You know what I find really interesting about that, though, is that Lupin's werewolf body is like the Whoa. shittiest werewolf body I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, I love that. I thought his it was so body. creepy. It's creepy, but it looks... It doesn't look like a wolf at all. It's nonsense. It looks like a werewolf. Who doesn't look like a werewolf? I'm sorry, according to, like, the werewolves you've seen elsewhere? (laughs) In other movies? It doesn't look like a werewolf. It is like... (laughs) How dare he be creative? (laughs) It is less convincing than Michael J. Fox in Teen Wolf. That is how I feel about How dare you? Harsh words. I love a werewolf that doesn't look like a wolf. I am super unimpressed with the, like... Werewolves are just people that just turn into totally realistic wolves. Well, fine. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, this is a democracy, so Marcel loses. <laughs> Werewolf was cool. Let's take a quick pause. I want to play for you some of the feedback that I got from people about this film adaptation. Um, what about the werewolf? Like, how did you feel about the way that this movie uh, con- constructs Weird. a werewolf? Like Was it convincing? No. Uh, no, he's walking on two damn legs. Like, sit down. No. He lo- he reminds me of, um, like, Lord of the Rings. Like a weird Gollum. He reminds me of Gollum. He's a weird hairless cat. Like, honestly, if I was going to compare him to a werewolf or a hairless cat, he looks like, like an overgrown like what hairless is, what cat. That thing from Kim Possible, like the naked oh, mole yes! rat? That's yes! what he, yeah, it's that's like exactly a, what it's like. It's like a human mixed with a ferocious yeah. naked mole rat. I guess they wanted more man and less wool. It does undermine that whole discussion in the book that where Snape has to teach them the difference between an actual wolf and a werewolf, mm-hmm. but they cut that out. In favor of just yeah, plotting true. the entire movie better than the book is plotted. Well, instead you have Snape explaining that where stands for man and wolf. Yeah, and, you know, and so Snape man, wolf. explaining what the difference between a werewolf and an animagus is. Yes. Which is incredibly helpful because that way he's introduced animagi into the narrative much earlier, mm-hmm. which means mm-hmm. when the big reveal comes um, yeah. at the end with Sirius Black, you don't have to have, like, the 35 pages of exposition that the book requires. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think that, I I mean, Marcel is suggesting an alternate werewolf form that is akin to Teen Wolf. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think it's important for the purposes of this movie that he not turn into an ordinary wolf. Because there's also another character who turns in, you know, who, who turns into a dog. Yeah. And I feel like having... I don't. It might just be a strange distinction to make between an animagus and a werewolf if they actually have almost exactly the same sort of experience of becoming an animal. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I think the fact that it's not an ordinary wolf is well well thought out, actually. Fair enough. But. Fuck you both. <laughs> so the, the other thing that I really liked about what Quirum <laughs> adds to this is that he seems much more invested in um, giving us a sense of of what an idyllic and beautiful space mm. um, Hogwarts can be mm-hmm. for these children, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a lot of scenes that are really carefully constructing a sort of the difference between the violence and, and scariness of the outside world and the sort of warmth and inclusiveness mm-hmm. and beauty of the world that's been created for these children in Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. The two scenes that really struck me are that scene right towards the beginning after they've all arrived mm-hmm. at Hogwarts and the Gryffindor boys are all yeah. up in their bedroom eating these candies. The magic bean party. The magic bean party where they're, you just made it sound like some sort of weird sex party. So Wasn't it? <laughs> I, I think so... we're. I think it's suggested that that's what it becomes. Oh, is this a subtext? <laughs> I missed the subtext. It's okay. Oh, I know you're not very good at spotting homoeroticism, <laughs> Hannah. I'm really bad at spotting homoerotic subtext. Just never comes up with you. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry. sorry. Um, Magic bean party. It's uh, yeah, and they all like sound like animals, mm-hmm. and they're just like playing this game, and it's mm-hmm. adorable. Yeah. And then the camera pans out, and outside it's you know pouring rain. There's the yeah. Dementors swooping around the castle. There are so many shots in this movie of light sources that are slightly they're slightly distorted by a window mm-hmm. in this sort of vast mm-hmm. hostile darkness mm-hmm. so many yeah yeah so because many. it's it's all about like light is so yeah. important mm-hmm. in this movie oh, right oh yeah like the way that scenes are lit the difference between the blue and golden light mm-hmm. right like some mm-hmm. scenes are blue and some are golden it's very distinctive different color signatures being used in different moments and uh, the, one of the most golden scenes is the scene where Hagrid is giving them their um, care of magical creatures mm-hmm. class, mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of like, I don't know, in the book, it's uh, a sort of nothing scene. Um, yeah. It's it's setting up Malfoy being a dick. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's filmed in the movie, it's all of these really long shots so that you're seeing everything yeah. happen from a distance. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense of this people standing in this really beautiful golden sort of idyllic pastoral forest scene right Mm -hmm. and that the encounter between Harry and this animal Mm -hmm. is part of this larger sort of pastoral trope that the film is presenting for us where it's like this is what your childhood looks like at Hogwarts and it's so it's just beautiful like there's just these moments that are so sort of warm looking Mm -hmm. yeah and I think that that's especially useful because the way that we leave Privet Drive when Harry um, Mm. takes his trunk and runs away Mm -hmm. is it's wet it's dark it's shitty there's a dog growling at him from the bushes he's just had he's just been treated like vermin by his Uncle Vernon's sister and the street light above him flickers out yeah and then all of a sudden they're in a horror movie for a second there's like the creaking like yeah. playground behind him, and I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" The Grim maybe has the ability to invisibly play on playground equipment. That's not the Grim, though. That's serious. No, no. Yeah. Okay, we Neil, to, wait, Neil, wait, <laughs> Neil. The Grim's not real. We have to what? talk about the function of the Grim in yeah. this in this movie because this is one of my big problems with it. I want to play feedback that I got from people about the Grim. So one thing that really troubled me about this movie um, when I first saw it was the fact that when Harry is playing Quidditch in that scene, he sees the Grim in the clouds, which is quite different from what happens in the book. Right in the book, Harry sees 
the dog sitting in the stands right. and he thinks he sees the grim and then he falls off the broom and there's this whole thing about am I seeing the grim what's going on right. and then we learn that it's serious because it's a dog and it's real but in this movie if he sees the grim in the clouds does he actually see the grim what does that mean I just want to yeah. like is it consistent in your opinion with the rest of the film Marcia and I brought that up we were sitting next to each other and giggling the entire time because <laughs> now that we're like more socially conscious and just like conscious in general like we see all of these things <laughs> like wow I'm general awake but, I, but like as I'm watching this and like picking it apart and I'm not usually one of those types of people I'm I turned to her and I was like but he doesn't see it in the clouds yeah. and so it's that argument of is he actually going to die then because he's seeing the real grim but not the other way around does somebody ask the question of why the grim growls at harry if it's serious black uh no i raised the issue of the grim in the clouds but i also want to talk about why it growls at yeah. harry if it's yeah. serious black so if it's serious black it's not actually like a spooky death dog um, yeah. Why is it growling? <laughs> I know. I know. It doesn't make it like. Yeah. This is my big problem with this film adaptation is that its internal logic, the internal logic of this film, fails to comprehend the fact that the Grim, that Sirius Black as the dog is not the Grim. Mm-hmm. It yeah. does not seem to understand that what we that the big reveal is that it was never the grim right. it was always this dog who was actually quite benevolent and even says at the end normally my disposition as a dog is quite friendly and gentle sweetest line in the entire movie it's not in the book and i fucking loved it i know you know what else is not in the book and i loved it and it's what? beautiful the scene when lupin starts to turn into the werewolf and sirius goes running up to him and, and says holding you, him and and like puts his hand on lupin's heart and says he was my old friend have you taken your potion tonight? Uh, you know the man you truly are, Remus. This heart is where you truly live. This heart here. This flesh is only flesh. You get such a better image of that friendship that's so central. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the between Remus Pad- and Padfoot. Oh, Padfoot and Prong. Mooney, Prongs. Wormtail. Wormtail. That was yeah. out of order. I apologize. Nerds. Um... <laughs> But uh, you get actually these uh, beautiful little glimpses of what that friendship looked like, right? Yeah. Like after Sirius Black says, um, you know, my disposition is actually much more pleasant as a dog. Yeah. And, then, you know, James on several occasions suggested that I sh- should just consider mm-hmm. keeping that mm-hmm. form full time. Yeah. Which is just these little moments of yeah. like, yeah, you guys were actually friends. And it feels so yeah. much more mm-hmm. meaningful to think about that friendship. He was at school with us. We thought he was our friend. And the way in which it's being betrayed mm-hmm. when you actually have some emotional attachment to that friendship. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But yes, your point about the Grimm. I totally misremembered that because I was thinking of the spookiness of the light going out and the Mm -hmm. playground thing going around. And I mean, for the purposes of that scene, that dog is the Grimm. You just find out later that it's not the case. Yeah. Which also reminds me of the ridiculous uh, scene in The Shrieking Shack where everyone is bursting in on everyone else. (laughs) That scene is amazing. Like, somebody close that door. (laughs) I I also love that during the time travel later, you see uh, Snape also enter the Whomping Willow slightly after Lupin. Mm -hmm. But but where Sirius Black uh, says, only one will die tonight, as though that's a reasonable way to make people realize that he's not, in fact, a crazy murderer who's about to kill them. Yeah. It it just strikes me as I will only murder one of you. <laughs> it's Which like, one? It's like the movie is trying to have that 
Harry Potter style ambiguity extend it just a few seconds longer by having yeah. him, for some reason, say this totally ambiguous thing yeah. about murder. He's like, oh, I am here to murder. Only one person, though. Also, none of you to whom I am speaking right now. <laughs> because I'm a good person. I do really like the moment when he, when he says, Pettigrew's alive! And he's right there! Ron, or whatever, yes. and Ron's like, hey, it's mental. to I did. Yeah. I did really like that moment. Oh, I thought that was. It was really great. Yeah. 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 Good yeah. job, Rupert Grant. You really, mm-hmm. you really pulled it together in this movie. You really did. We're not ready to talk about. <laughs> no, that's casting. true. Sorry, yeah, no, Rupert sorry. Grant sorry. was pretty charming in this movie. Yeah. The other um, thing I would say that Cuarón is doing a pretty good job of in terms of structure um, is the time travel piece. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that he's. He's actually given you a lot more clues throughout mm-hmm. that time travel is going to be something that mm-hmm. happens. Um, it starts much earlier on in the narrative that sort of inexplicable events are occurring mm-hmm. that indicate to you the intervention of the characters later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it just ties together much more neatly and is sort of more satisfying as a narrative yeah. device because there's more overlap. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite uh, shots in that is actually in... Lupin's dark arts class where there is a long and extended shot that moves around the room Mm -hmm. and you see the group of students standing there and the camera turns away and then it turns back to them and Hermione is suddenly there Mm -hmm. and it was so clever that I mean it's a fairly simple effect but I rewatched it several times and she actually isn't yeah. There in the earlier part, and I thought that's that's so clever. Actually, yeah. that's such a, do it as one a clever shot. way to show that there's yeah. something unusual going on yeah. there. Yeah, and it's not like the, I love the way in the movie that it's not like she they leave her behind and then she's like, "Oh, I'm here again." It's like they turn away, and when they turn back, she's there. And yeah, she's freaking them out. I know. Yeah. How can anybody tell me what a boggart looks like? No one knows. When she get here. You weren't just here, and she's like, "Yeah, of course I was," and just like continues as though she's in mid sentence. Yeah, like she knows exactly what's going on. She's just like, "Uh, "You're an idiot. I've been here the whole time." Yeah, it's so fun. Such a good running joke that that turns out to be so important to the plot of the movie, actually. Okay, Uh, so speaking of characters who just suddenly appear out of thin air, Mm -hmm. we also have to talk about the sudden appearance of the nameless young black Gryffindor who seems to play a fairly important role in this movie because he says a bunch of really important and useful things, Mm -hmm. but is never named, Mm -mm. does not appear in the boys' dormitory, is a Gryffindor because he's wearing a Gryffindor tie, but has never appeared in any of the previous movies. Uh, I don't think he is in any of the future movies, but I guess we'll find out. That remains to be seen. And I want to be very clear about this. I am super into changing character representations to increase the representation of people of color. I think that's a really super important thing that directors can do and should do and don't do often enough. I'm uncomfortable when they remain unnamed. It suggests to me that they Mm -hmm. are literally token characters. Yeah, like make him one of the Gryffindor guys. He could be... Any of them. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. None of them have names. No, no. But this true. was also something that um, when I was chatting about this with uh, with our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, um, he was saying that none of the characters have names except for Ron, Harry, and Hermione 
a little bit Neville. But he was like, yeah, Dean's never named. But actually, Dean is named because Dean answers a question in Lupin's class. And Lupin says something like, correct, Dean, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we know that this new character, who is also black, can't be it's Dean. Not Dean. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of other Gryffindor boys in their year. Like, we know it's not Seamus because he's the Irishist. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do think... Um, you know, the point that the rest of Gryffindor is a fairly undifferentiated mass of names that you might hear once or twice and you don't associate with something yeah. is true. But I also think that that should work very differently in a film where oh, you yeah. see everyone. And if they speak on camera, I, I agree that it actually stands out if you don't know the name yeah. of a character who yeah. is who speaks several times. Yeah, and says, like, important things. Yes. I bet he's credited yeah. with a character name on IMDb. I bet. I'm never going to look it up. I bet. No, we'll never look it up. No. Listeners, that's your job. <laughs> no. I'll look things up. We're bad at internet. Can we? Can I just say one more thing about the Grimm? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. The Grimm appearing in the clouds... Oh, yeah. ...makes me... It makes my blood boil. Because if the Grimm appears in the clouds, that means that Harry is actually seeing a death omen. Well, ditto Harry seen... Um, Sirius Black's face in the crystal ball. Which I think makes sense because he's seeing Sirius Black. He is there's there are clues in this in the book that Harry does actually possess the gift of sight. Mm-hmm. Um, because much like Trelawney, a number of predictions that he makes do in fact come true. For example, when when Trelawney is like, What do you see? Is it the death of the of the um, hippogriff Buckbeak, and he's like, no, it like gets away, he escapes, blah, blah, blah. And then that ends mm-hmm. up being what in fact mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do, I don't actually have um, a narrative coherence problem with Harry seeing Sirius Black's face mm-hmm. in the crystal ball, but seeing the grim in the clouds suggests that Harry is seeing a death omen. It doesn't, which it suggests not. that Harry's starting to see the grim everywhere he looks mm-hmm. when it's not actually there. But, right? doesn't this go... the but isn't it there? Because we're not looking at it from Harry's perspective. We're looking at it as the audience. Maybe we are. The, I think this goes to the very first thing that you, you were saying, Hannah, about uh, the unreliability of Harry as a narrator. I think for films, you typically assume that you're not seeing them through the point of mm-hmm. view of any subjective, the subjective point of view of any character. So I think if that is the case... I, I almost have less of a problem with the tea leaves than with the clouds because yeah. the tea leaves at least seem artfully arranged to suggest <laughs> the grim. Yeah. The clouds, though, those just aren't what clouds look like. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's not, oh, that's reminiscent yeah. of, a gr- of yeah. the grim. And that's a directorial change because yeah. in that scene in the book, Harry sees the dog sitting in the stands Yeah, yeah. with its with its head like against the clouds in the background. That's where he yeah. sees it. So either Alfonso Cuaron read the book wrong or was just like, you know what would be <laughs> more so interesting? Suspicious. You're like, you read this book and he's bad at reading <laughs> I hate it when people are bad at reading. It makes me yeah. so mad. Don't even get me started Ooh. on Richard Parker I, in Life of Pi. I do need to make <laughs> a concession, however, mm-hmm. because the um, the grim in the tea leaves looks distinctly like the Bloomsbury dog. <gasps> Look at that dog. Totally does. Totally does. Wow. <laughs> yep. So wow. You can't see a viewer's... Job, Marcel. Oh, the viewers. culture text you, is afoot. You can't see it, listeners, but I'm patting myself in the back. Literally, it's <laughs> happening. Hold up. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cross your fingers and hope you're not in Slytherin because it's time for the sorting ceremony in which we talk about casting choices. So, um... There's a few new characters we need to talk through mm-hmm. before we get into the representation of our favorites. And Neil is making a face like he has an opinion. I have so many thoughts about how casting works in this movie. Share some with us. Because I think that part of what's interesting about the Harry Potter series is that idea of characters who appear ambiguous to Harry. Mm-hmm. And I think in the books that works largely through the fact that the books are told from Harry's perspective. And I find it fascinating that the movies have to perform at least a comparable work, but for the audience rather than for the characters. And that's why I'm so fascinated by the casting of people like Gary Oldman Mm -hmm. as Sirius Black. And in that scene where he appears in The Shrieking Shack, I mean, it seems quite believable on an actorly level that he's actually there to kill Ron. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. he's a madman who's yeah. going to kill Ron, believing that he's Peter. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I think is so interesting about that is that's a fairly common observation. You know, they cast Gary Oldman as a sort of character who's intended to be ambiguous. But what I find fascinating about that is the recasting of Dumbledore mm-hmm. as Michael Gambon, who also seems like he might kill the children at any moment. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> seems incredibly sinister. And duplicitous, he just seems like he's hiding something. And this is actually <laughs> yeah. what I was talking about with, I can't remember the Twitter name. Renachka? Renachka. This is what we were talking about, is that Michael Gambon often plays characters who are extremely evil mm-hmm. and sort of extremely sinister. And seeing him as Dumbledore, I don't, I think he, he does carry that with him. And so I'm fascinated yeah. as to yeah. why he was cast as the second Dumbledore. I mean, there's something, like, as we get to know Dumbledore better as a character, we see him as an increasingly ambivalent character Mm -hmm. who makes some really bad choices, who is, in fact, like, masterminding a plot that involves manipulating a child into being a weapon on his behalf. Like, Mm -hmm. there's some, some interesting problematic things about Dumbledore as a character and I can see sort of letting that darkness creep in gradually mm-hmm. but the casting change in between the second and third totally. movie just means that he goes from being like twinkly grandpa mm-hmm. to being like maniacal is the word I wrote down when yeah. I was describing him I was like he is up to no good yeah. in in the first scene uh, or the first scene in which he appears where he's giving the opening of your address it reminds me so much of his monologues in uh, The Cook, the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover where he's this totally uncouth gangster who sort of has these long aggressive monologues that are extremely sort of violent and threatening and sinister <laughs> and even though everything Dumbledore is saying is sort of benign yeah, yeah I it he immediately I think comes across as this shady duplicitous character so shady. yeah you guys aren't alone in this let me play for you some of the feelings of our friends who went to see the film screening can I ask a question yeah of course uh, what do you guys think of the new Dumbledore he was my favorite of the two because Dumbledore's dark and twisted and 
Richard Harris, you know, God rest his soul. He was like, he was Father Christmas Dumbledore. Um, I think, Kay, I liked the first Dumbledore better, and I think it was because, I'm sorry, I just do. Um, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think he was by any means the perfect Dumbledore either, um, but I do think that he was just, like, a little bit more, like, I mean, you said Father Christmas, but I mean, he was more fatherly, um, but I liked him for that a little bit more, um, I did think that he was, like, I feel like they hired a dying man, and, like, just, like, you guys should have known. Um, (laughs) that really comes across, like, he is a whispery, frail, impotent man. Um, I, I liked the new Dumbledore, but I don't think I would have liked him in the first two movies. Because I, I think Richard Harris suits the tone of the first two movies. And I think this one, like Natasha said, is kind of swaying away from like the childhood. Yeah. And you're kind yeah. of starting to enter into the whole like Voldemort situation. Yeah, I felt like the new one's like really cryptic and he like doesn't really... <laughs> Yeah, like the the like Natasha said, the first one was like he would like give Harry what he needed. He would like comfort him, and the new one's just like in his own head, kind of just like yeah. He 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 is not coherent. He's not a coherent person, and that's part of the sort of that quality that he has that puts people off their guard and it lulls you into a sense of like this is really just an old man but then he also has that fire wit or whatever and I don't think the first Dumbledore had that at all. I think at the same time this Dumbledore also has like the most the highest percentage of inspirational quotes like if, if you were to make posters of all of his cheesy quotes like half of them would be from this yeah, movie. Yeah people have tattoos of the light. Yeah, of the remember to turn movie. on the light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would also like to add that the um, magic trick that Dumbledore does at the end of that opening speech where he like puts a candle out and then lights it again is unbefitting of a real wizard. That is some <laughs> shitty street magic is what that is. Sort of a conjurer of cheap tricks yeah. kind of thing. If you will. <laughs> if you if will. You will. <laughs> to coin a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was um, impressed. And then that moment at the end when uh, Harry and Hermione come running back and say to Dumbledore very reassuringly, we did it, he's free, or whatever. And he's like, did what? Bye. <laughs> and like, <laughs> descends down the stairs. I mean, just when, it's when, he, creepy. when he's telling them what to do in the infirmary and he keeps leaning on Ron's broken leg. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny. Except that it's horrifying. No, but it's it's just like the opening where he says uh, that that the um, hand care of magical creatures uh, teacher is resigned to spend more time with his remaining limbs. Yeah. yeah. And you're immediately like, did you did, did you do something? Did you take? <laughs> did you? Do you have his limbs now? Have no, I, I mean, I will also say I really like Michael Gambon. I think he's a really good actor. I enjoyed him so much and things. But I enjoy him in things like The Singing Detective, where he's a sinister, morally yeah. ambiguous character. It doesn't have to be sinister because no. he plays Emma's father in the recent BBC adaptation of Emma with Romola Garai. And he does, he is an innocuous, hmm. sweet, sort of vague old man yeah. who is like closer to what I would imagine Dumbledore looks like in these first books. Yeah. Like he's yeah. made a choice yeah. here. Oh, yeah. And yeah. his choice is so strange. So so I mean, it, it's funny because I think in some ways, um, were the movie I don't we don't want to do research, but were the movies just one ahead of the books at this stage? Uh, no, the fifth book was out by this okay. point. Well, because I almost think if if that was just an actorly gamble that he thought it made sense to play the character as sinister, that did pay off. 
yeah. really well, and but that, that how could you have known? That question again of what the relationship is between the films and the books. That's a really good point. Whether the films yeah. were in some way influencing. So a sort of, of another McGonagall yeah. sort yeah. of action. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, speaking of sinister, I just want to add as a side note um, that Tom the the innkeeper mm-hmm. is introduced as a character. Um, I am pretty sure that he's not a creepy sinister hunchback in the books. I thought that he was a hunchback, but I don't think he's supposed to be Lurch. Yeah, because yeah. he's Lurch. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's like he's a monster. Um, and that scene where he's like offering food to Harry, <laughs> offering yeah. the various foods, like picking up two pieces of bread and just like holding them out, yeah. and then he like yeah. takes a handful of walnuts and crushes them in his bare hand. Yeah. I was like, that was, I think, the moment where I texted you and said this movie was like a fever dream because I was <laughs> yeah. like, what is happening right now? How do I want to wear this? My problem with the depiction of Tom the innkeeper is that his his body is supposed to be a kind of comic relief and mm-hmm. I'm really uncomfortable with that. I'm like really uncomfortable with the suggestion that this like non-normatively bodied person yeah. is like creepy and weird and isn't that funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. I I mean it's I think in some ways that sort of fetishizing of freakishness mm-hmm. is part and parcel of the nostalgic the kind of fever dream mm-hmm. style but I think that that well that and the severed heads actually the shrunken heads is actually the moment where it crosses over into something just truly unpleasant mm-hmm. because yeah. I think you know the it's one thing for the werewolf to be this strange kind of freakish figure mm-hmm. but yeah for I a man who so over the line. like has a condition that like a lot of people have yeah <laughs> yeah but I mean similarly like we know that um sorry what's the name of the the guy on the night bus Stan Shunpike Stan Shunpike right like we're told in the book that he has bad skin yeah but the way that his acne looks like he might have like the bubonic plague mm-hmm. yeah in the movie like everything's gross yeah in the all the scenes leading up to arriving in Hogwarts are like really disgusting yeah, yeah. I am also really troubled by the fact that um, Stan Shunpike appears to be a sexual predator. <laughs> like, I'm really, really, like, I know that he doesn't lick his lips when he's looking at Harry, but he might as well have. It's just... I didn't get the sexual predator part, because oh, apparently I'm bad at reading homework yeah, subjects. I didn't. But he was, he was certainly sinister. Yeah. He was certainly, like, the night bus is supposed to be, like a fun like it rescued you but yeah. it's not it's no. horrifying yeah. yeah yeah he's not supposed to be creepy he's supposed to be doofy and yes. foolish yeah and like the the bus driver is like a bus driver from hell oh yeah yeah, yeah. that bus is taking you to hell <laughs> yeah. and that whole sequence is so like one of the scarier Warner Brothers cartoons from the 40s or something. Yeah. You know, Harry gets thrown against the bus window three times, twice? At least twice. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, the goofy kind of music in the background. It's like that goofy Manic kind of xylophone music. scale. Yeah. That talking head. Lupin is so homely. I want to know <laughs> how it can be that. That was my critique of Sirius, and you were like, "No, no, no, no way would Sirius be a babe." Because when Sirius this is your critique of just Lupin, just got out of Azkaban. Yeah, but Lupin <laughs> literally transforms into a wolf once a month. Yeah, and so he gets a so little like he's weakened and stuff, but and he, still he gets gets three only square chocolate. meals a day. <laughs> 
he probably has rickets. <laughs> you don't know he that. He probably has Lyme disease. We know from the books. Listen. It's never sunny this Rebecca, year. Rebecca, listen. Because the Dementors are afoot literally all the time. We know from the books. Neither of arrives, them are babes. He arrives at Hogwarts very sort of... Like frayed, his clothing is frayed. He's sort of gray and grizzled. I mean, but he's, he's also probably really worn down from like the hegemony of everyone telling him that he shouldn't. Be absolutely, a he's out of work. He's he's a, a victim of capitalism, as are we all. But but you have to understand that modernity he, has ground looping down. But he he arrives at Hogwarts. Snape never once gives him a potion, but we are led to believe that he's drinking this potion and that that makes him sort of you know. Able to it's get through these monthly transformation, these monthly moon times, uh, you know, in an appropriate way. His aunt Flo visiting, and so, and and so, I think it's reasonable and feasible based on what we learned from the books that he should be a little more handsome in the movies, and he's just not. Okay, so in a more positive note, I'm gonna say I love this Lupin. Mm-hmm. I think they did a really good job yeah. of choosing a Lupin. I found him um, trustworthy, mm-hmm. unlike literally any single other character in the entire movie. <laughs> right? Like he's a competent adult. Yeah. Yeah. Um he's he is wackier yes. than he is in the book, but that's because this movie needs everything to be as wacky as possible. Mm-hmm. Like when he's teaching the children how to get rid of the Bogart. Picture the thing they fear the very most and turn it into something and he's like, you know what? This lesson needs a soundtrack. Rock. And puts on some, like, manic old-timey music yeah. that they can, like, beat a Bogart to. Yeah. Okay, Neil, you're, you're fancy film, <laughs> filmy McFancy pants. Yes. What's the difference between music that's actually part of the scene and music that's... Uh, it's diegetic sound is sound that comes from within the world of the film, and non-diegetic sound is one that comes from a source that's not within the world of the film. Yeah, so we've had lots of non-diegetic uses. <laughs> this of, is like, the only time this degree is useful <laughs> to me. <laughs> got lots of uses of um, non-diegetic uses yeah. of like wacky music, right? Like the the opening scene where Aunt Marge is expanded, and mm-hmm. then the scene on the night bus. It's like you've got this sort of like manic, frantic music being used. But then in that scene with Lupin, it suddenly becomes diegetic. Like, Lupin's yeah. like, I'm sorry, one sec, this scene needs a soundtrack. goes <laughs> and puts it on. Pardon me. Some wacky swing music. Yeah. Actually, what, it's one thing that I thought was really interesting about that scene is that it is this wacky, old-timey gramophone swing music, but every time the Boggart comes out as whatever the children are afraid of, mm-hmm. non-diegetic John Williams' scary orchestral mm-hmm. score music starts to play, and then when they cast the ridiculous spell successfully it fades away yeah. I just thought that was an interesting again I mean a very yeah. filmic use of something that you can really only do in film but the sort of crossing of diegetic and non-diegetic the totally yeah. inappropriate diegetic music mm-hmm. actually yeah. fades away to be replaced by totally appropriate soundtrack yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and then they keep moving back and forth yeah, yeah. Gary Oldman. We talked about Gary Oldman. Terribly convincing. Um, Trelawney. 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 Oh my gosh, she's so good. Oh, Emma Thompson. So good. Did she come back? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 She's she is at her best in book five. Okay. I think. Or I mean movie five. Okay. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful in this. Like so she just one hundred percent convincing, and she's also smarter in this than she is in yeah. the in the book. Yeah. Like she's her. 
her really sort of scathing put down of Hermione is mm-hmm. in fact completely uh, correct. Uh, you may be young in years, but the heart that beats beneath your bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's. Your soul as dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, sing. Yeah, and when she does, when she has the real vision um, yeah. or the real prophecy, mm-hmm. and then she like gets hair stuck in her mouth when she's coming out of it and coughing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I also really enjoy that in the first divination lesson, everything she says is delivered in the most urgent, breathless whisper. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> With these little moans in yeah. between. Yeah. So good. It's wonderful. It's, it's great. Wonderful. Yeah, she's fantastic. So, I would like to talk briefly about Snape. Okay. Because I was really, I mean, I was so bothered by Snape's behavior in the third book that I was really watching for what it looked like in the third movie. And boy, howdy, did they change him as a character. Totally. Yeah. I don't know whether that was a sort of realization on the part of the the screenwriter or the director that you can't have a character doing these things and it just wouldn't play on screen. It would look yeah. like child abuse. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is. It is. But it just, it's just gone. Um, I mean, that does sort of support our thesis that it's being hugely blown out of proportion by Harry's mm. perspective mm-hmm. in yeah. the books. Um, right? Like, he's less cruel. He's less manic. Um, we have scenes, like the scene where... Um, the children are getting confronted for the werewolves coming right, after them, yeah. and he steps in front of them and puts his yeah, arms he's, out. Like he's, he's downright heroic. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. actually totally. protecting the children, and yeah. there's nothing un like there's nothing unreasonable about his wanting to arrest Sirius Black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like Sirius Black looks like a crazy murderer. Like yeah. Yeah. any reasonable adult would believe the same thing that he does. Yeah. Um, uh, Alan Rickman's delivery of the line about the Dementor's kiss and how it's supposed to be unbearable. I could do it, you know. But why deny it? The Dementors, they're so longing to see you. Do I detect a flicker of fear? Oh, yes. A Dementor's kiss. One can only imagine what that must be like to endure. It's said to be nearly unbearable to witness, but I'll do my best. Severus, please. Impeccable. It's haunting. It gave me chills. It gave me chills just now thinking about it. There's so many. I was watching the first part of this movie with my friend Carla, and she pointed out that in the first scene when Hagrid is, um, sorry, when Lupin is announced as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, the camera hovers over Snape for a moment, who does this incredibly brilliant, like, he, like, claps twice and then puts his hands down, and it's so It's good. amazing. It's really incredible. But he's, like, funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's this other moment where he's confronted Harry with the Marauder's Map, mm-hmm. and he's Harry's still holding it um, while Snape has been doing stuff to it, and then Lupin comes up, and Lupin's like, what's going on? And Snape theatrically snatches it out of Harry's hands and then says, I have just now confiscated this object. <laughs> it's like, literally just now. Yeah. Like, you yeah. just, yeah. Like, yeah. I just confiscated this. Totally. It's fantastic. I, I also, I just want to add briefly that while we're on the Marauder's Map, I think another thing that this movie does really well is um, in terms of the, the, the way that the plot comes together, um, mm. Harry giving the Marauder's map to Lupin and then following it up with the fact that he saw Peter Pettigrew on there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that being the major thing that like puts into motion the rest of the the rest of the story I think is genius. Makes I think so that, much that more sense. Mm-hmm. it wraps everything up really yeah. tightly and beautifully. 
Um, that's all. Oh. Just wanted to add yeah, that. I agree. On a on a sort of related note, I also thought another fascinating thing about the movie is its interest in documentary. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, in documents rather. Mm-hmm. Oh, because the, one of the ways that I think it's so filmic is by focusing so much on the moving photographs mm-hmm. on the Marauders map, which becomes the end credits are yeah. just yeah. a delight to watch because they're just the Marauders map. Yeah. But I think there's so many scenes in this movie that focus in on some dynamic piece of text, and I just mm-hmm. think it's so unusual to see a movie represent. Uh, reading text mm-hmm. in that kind of way. I mean, helped by the fact that wizards love love watching little little gifs. Of, uh, of <laughs> oh my god, they're just <laughs> wizards gifts. love gifs. They're just gifs. because I'm thinking about the the obsession with the wanted poster. Right, right. Yeah. Like that's one of those central. The scene, the yeah. very very long single shot where Arthur Weasley is telling Harry yeah. that Sirius mm-hmm. Black is likely to be coming after him, and they move from being distant in the background they move increasingly into the foreground but mm-hmm. every time they change positions the a different copy of the wanted poster is reframed yeah. at the center of the shot so that yeah. they're constantly moving around this poster and Sirius Black is there in that poster screaming yeah and it's so freaky yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so disturbing yeah so they're clearly foreshadowing like pretty overtly Ron and Hermione getting together. Yeah. Which yeah. must be them looking forward in the books, because that's not in the... It's not. It's not mm. in the books yet. It is in the fourth one, because in the fourth... Anyway, whatever, we're not going to talk about the fourth book right now. But I remember when I watched this, I went to this movie with my grandmother, and I remember watching it and being like, oh, they're doing that already. And feeling a little bit of flutter in my mm. heart, because apparently... Um, heteronormative relationships just like bring a particular joy for me I don't even know typical classic (laughs) Um, but yeah they are they are foreshadowing that quite overtly and Hermione Mm -hmm. while being pretty awesome throughout most of this movie does spend a lot of her time um, burying her face in either Ron or Harry's chest yes yeah she does. I think surprisingly for a movie where she gets the amazing scene of punching Draco in the face Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The movie does treat her (laughs) as this kind of accessory to other things. After the werewolf confrontation, she actually says, oh, that was so scary, and clutches Harry. I I was like, (gasps) and it's constantly shifting back and forth in these scenes, Mm -hmm. right? Where, like, you have Hermione, like, being super badass and, like, solving the problem with the wolf. And then, like, really scared and having to clutch him. Mm -hmm. And then, like, being, like, screaming her head off on Buckbeak. For them being the one who effortlessly blows open a jail door, right? Yeah. So like, it's so ambiguous. It's like, you can't figure out what to do <laughs> yeah. with her as a character. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like they took the teeth out of this Hermione. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like she's just a little bit too um, gentle. Mm-hmm. I really resented that line um, where she says, "Is that what my hair looks like from the back?" I know. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, fuck you!" No. I know. I agree. No. I, and like the this the scene when after Harry learns of um, Sirius Black's apparent betrayal uh, and like takes off in the invisibility cloak and Hermione like reaches out and and like takes it off, I think is a very like beautiful and touching scene. But it really bugs me. I'm like really, I'm just so bored of female characters always playing mom yeah. in every conceivable opportunity. Like it's just not that interesting. And Hermione in this book is so much more interesting than the gentle, reassuring, um, yeah. motherly yeah. figure. Yeah. In the yeah. book, she's shrill. 
and yeah. they really undermine that. Yeah. Um, well, at the same time, like, so she's not shrill in the movie, and yet they have more characters commenting on her shrillness mm-hmm. because when Snape says, like, when Snape calls her an insufferable know-it-all, um, Ron says, "Yeah, he's got oh, a point. He's got a point. Yeah. It's just like." Sheep has not done anything wrong. Yeah. yeah, no, not at all. Like you're supposed to be on her side, Ron. No. Though, as we were saying before, Ron, way better in this movie. Oh, totally. That oh, scene God. where they're in the background while um, Ron and Hermione in the background while Harry's having a touching scene with Sirius Black, and you can hear Ron telling Hermione that his yes. leg's gonna have to be chopped off. Yeah. Hermione's like, I think Madame Humphrey will be able to to heal it, no problem. That He's was like, really nope, charming. Nope, it's gonna have to come <laughs> off. That That mysterious new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher is looking a little scruffy. We should probably take him to Madame Malkin's props for all occasions and have a chat about the importance of costume sets and special effects. I need to start off by pointing out that in the opening scene... Did you notice? I did. The opening scene where we see Harry under the blanket practicing his spells, center of the shot, right behind him, the picture he drew of Hedwig. Oh, yeah. I took a screenshot this time. (laughs) We'll tweet it. Hedwig! Yeah. (laughs) Hedwig. (laughs) Yeah. And also that that opening shot, sorry, this is actually not about pretty, that's one of the first zoom in, zoom mm-hmm. out sort of things that happens. And, and one of those first like really, really filmic shots because yeah. it zooms out into the title sequence yeah. and then back into his room, which is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very true. A lot yeah. going on in that scene. So, so many things. Some subtext, but it totally escapes me. <laughs> I'm just not sure what. Just some, something about light. Um... What could light be a symbol for? I just don't know. I know that you guys are doing that thing where you're being sarcastic about the fact that you don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about oh, right now. You'll talk about what light's a symbol for. Well, <laughs> you'll provide an actual reading of the scene, would you? Well, I mean, it, it introduces light as the you know visual motif that continues throughout the movie, where uh. the, the light equals good. There's also the sort of hilariously obvious, um, you know, adolescence thing going on. It's a metaphor for masturbation. Yeah. <gasps> I'm too timid to say that Harry Potter is jerking it. Harry Potter but. is magically jerking it, and I love I just mean, whispering wand, Lumos to himself over and over. And Max just like makes the tip you know, glow, and then his uncle keeps bursting into the room. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that's that where you guys great. are at. Well, I, also it's, it's interesting that that is how the motif of light is introduced. Yep. Yeah, I think this is a coming of age yeah. movie, right? Like this is one of the this is the movie where they really start to introduce some elements of sexuality into yeah. these characters. Yeah, and it opens with this scene, right? And that's important to his character throughout because he um, is so sexually pent up. Well, but also he's he's getting more resistant to authority, yes. more yeah. aggressively resistant to authority. The way he mm-hmm. w- storms out of the house, mm-hmm. um, the sort of the way he's becoming more confrontational with Snape. Mm-hmm. You should probably take this stuff and put it back before you said Malcolm's pops for all occasions. Yeah. <laughs> or not. We, we can, or, or we can shift over to, to yeah. the actual You reorganize it or just let it be yeah. the chaos well, that it is. I love chaos. I never realized how tense it got in the recording studio. <laughs> it really does. things happen. It really does. Sometimes just, I cry. I am not comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I've once again changed the topic of this section. Where's, I mean, I I'm looking through the notes that I have about sort of props and sets and realize that we've well, talked about everything. Actually, already. here's here's a set question that I have for you because I also don't remember this uh, from the books. But the Shrieking Shack, mm-hmm. which I think is done pretty well in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a sort of it's shabby, terrible. Every yeah. door is at an angle that's yeah. kind of hanging off its hinges. Um. Where is it in relation to Hogwarts? It's in Hogsmeade. It's yeah. in Hogsmeade. Yeah, it's one okay. of the attractions in Hogsmeade. Okay. So um, when Harry gets the Marauder's Map from the uh, the Weasley twins, they say there are a few different routes to get you to Hogsmeade. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. But this one, um, the Whomping Willow was planted on top of it, so you can't get into that oh. one anymore. So instead, take this other one, mm-hmm. and it leads you up inside of the, oh, okay. the candy shop. Um, and that. so okay. he doesn't, and then eventually we see him, you know, they go into right. the Wampy Willow, it brings you up in the Shrieking Shack. I was a little confused because the Shrieking Shack is supposed to be not actually haunted, mm-hmm. yeah. but everything in it is moving. Yeah. Like, there's just doors that are just, like, opening and closing. I also, drafty. In, drafty. in the movie, they also call it the most haunted house in Britain. Yeah. yeah. Which se- seems to suggest that it would be difficult to spend the ten minutes that we do spend in it. It's not haunted It's not all. haunted, yeah. 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 No, I just, it's a, yeah, yeah. Why, why the most haunted? Uh, to keep people out of it? Yeah. I guess, yeah. Because in the book, they say that that was a rumor started by Dumbledore. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's where, that's where... Remus was when he was going through his right. transformations. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like <laughs> that is fine. a lot less clear in the movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of things that only make sense in the movie if you've read the book. But then at the same time, yeah. if you've read the book, you may, like me, be outraged <laughs> by some of the directorial interventions oh, that are made. For example, that talking head. That talking head. We, I only am that talking head. I mean, I feel like at this point in which, please, you can probably imagine what we'll say about the shrunken head, but... <laughs> Maybe we should just talk about shrunken heads real quick. We might as, I mean, let's talk about them right now, and then I'll just edit and splice it into the... they're there. There's oh, sorry, am I... talking shrunken head on the... On the... On the... So the bus, and then there's the shrunken head on... The shrunken heads. At yeah. the, the three broomsticks. Yeah. 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 Um, which is like... <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. It's like, a lot of talking shrunken heads. We know from the books that Borgen and Burks have shrunken heads. So we know that they are, are something that if you are a, a, a wizard who's into dark magic that you would have. Yeah. They are not dice. They, they are, are not big fluffy dice are, that you dangle from your rearview mirror. Apparently yeah. a funny thing that it's just like cool to have hanging around. Like, yeah. yeah, take it away, Ernie. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> a racialized, talking, shrunken head. Yeah. And the camera loves that head. Uh-huh. We spend so, so much time. Much time. And What's that head up to? Jamaican accent. What's it saying? <laughs> hey, if you have the pea soup, make sure you eat it before it eats you. <laughs> I bet it's saying it in a funny voice. Oh my God. Yeah. I, oh my yeah. God. I mean, talking about, you know, the use of people of color as props. Exactly. Like, like this is a literal example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, was brutal. <laughs> Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, three and a half, two, one and three quarters. These are special effects, but in the movie, the Dementors just show up. <laughs> 
And the character the characters don't seem nearly disturbed enough, I, I would say, considering what's happening on that train. Yeah, I totally agree with I you. I mean, I, I'm hypothesizing a viewer of this film who hasn't read the book. Yeah. But what the hell is going on in that scene if you don't know what a Dementor is? Yeah. Like yeah. The, I feel like that initial scene when the Dementor comes on the train and it's got its like creepy clawy hand and stuff and the ice and everything, I think that's all pretty strong. But I think that they could have done a better job at making the characters like react effectively yeah. to it but it doesn't seem to be consistent with the rest of the with the rest of the film when the when the oh okay okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> the dementors kiss everybody all the time oh it's yeah it's just oh, what they yeah. do the dementors are just like ooh, ooh some of your soul chomp a chomp yeah. chomp chomp what is it that the Dementors do? Do they remove your memory of all the good things that have happened to you? Do, or do they just make you depressed? They just make you depressed. They wow, make you that is dark. Happiness. They eat your happiness. So you, you don't, don't lose the memories, you just lose your ability to be happy. Okay, okay, so they do make you, they affect an actual change yeah. in how you mm-hmm. feel about memories that you retain. Yeah, they force you to relive huh. all of your worst experiences. Mm-hmm. I just, and they I, suck out all of the positive. I feel like that's metaphysically very interesting that that's what they do. They yeah. cause depression, essentially. Yeah, yeah basically. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I find parts of parts of them and parts of their filmic depiction to be believable, but in terms of the like kind of floating in the air ghosty mm. kind They're of They're too ghosty and not rotty enough. Yeah. yeah. Sh- they should be slimier. Yeah. They're not slimy. They're like wispy. Like yeah. I, I want them to be more like the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Mm-hmm. Like I want mm-hmm. them to be. I want them to affect that kind of terror. They're and very horror. ethereal. And yeah. yeah, I agree. They're like yeah. bad fairies instead of mm-hmm. terror. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I feel about that. Depression fairies. So another thing I was a little disappointed in, like as I was saying, I really like what Hogwarts looked like mm-hmm. in this movie. I think they like they they're just in so many more spaces, sort of. Like gratuitously, but I was a little disappointed with the Hogsmeade itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hogsmeade did not feel very magical to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, yeah. Hogsmeade. I just think, especially when they get inside on um, the three broomsticks, mm-hmm. yeah. it's sort of like shabby. Yeah, yeah. Like it just didn't. Hogsmeade didn't evoke any of that. Like sort of nostalgic, Christmassy, small English mm-hmm. town charm for me. It mm. was just. It was just sort of like snowy and then like they went inside that the inn and it had shitty shrunken heads in it so I hated it yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I spend yeah. no time in the candy shop yeah there yeah. is that scene of the unnamed black character with a big pink piece of candy floss also on. Harry does steal Neville's lollipop what? just no. floats it right out the front door yes yeah. I assume Neville walks didn't. through town sucking on a lollipop while still invisible like you were Terrible. I assume that yeah. Neville didn't even bother telling anyone about it because the idea of candy just floating out of his hands is so in keeping with his fate. <laughs> it's just what it's like being Neville. Sometimes food just floats away. Lupin says to Harry, the reason why the Dementors come after you is because you're the only child who has had real darkness in your life. What about I, I Neville? Know. <laughs> I know. I know. Arguably what happened to Neville is even worse. Yeah. I would I would insist yeah. that it's worse. Yeah. I know that it's terrible to lose your parents, but to have your parents like as we learn Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence obliviate in five, four, three, two, one. Remain 
alive and just gone, like yeah. gone completely, would I think be, because you have to relive that every time you visit them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah. And yet, totally. and yet what Neville feels, fears more than anything else is a teacher who's mean to him. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Oh Jeez. God, Maybe Neville. Neville is more brave than Harry. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's what that's really pointing at. That's like, true. Harry is is afraid of fear itself, but Neville is afraid of, like, a specific person who can cause yeah. harm. Mm-hmm. And it's not the person who caused harm to his parents, as we will learn. Mm-hmm. It's somebody who is, like, bullying him and making him feel um, like he isn't good enough. Because mm-hmm. he's all, he also doesn't want the Boggart to turn into his grandmother either, right? And she's also this person who, like, as we come to learn, um, does Pretty not make him feel him. good enough. Yeah. Somebody needs to be nice to Neville. Maybe not steal candy out yeah, of his steal hands. Steal candy from him. God damn it. Yeah, Harry's a bit of a bully in that scene. Uh, I love Hedwig in this oh, yeah. movie, mm-hmm. but that's mostly because I want to add in more owl sound effects. But that mm. scene when Harry and Lupin are talking in the woods and then they sort of arrive at a clearing and Hedwig is just hanging out there waiting for them and, he- and Harry is stroking her, stroking her beautiful snowy feathery back. Mm. So I had a very interesting conversation with um, a friend of mine named Rebecca. Not the Rebecca you know, a different Rebecca. What? I know. And um, we were talking about owls, because she was saying that after watching the Harry Potter movies, she got really into owls and was briefly considering giving an owl as a pet. Um, And so she did some research, and apparently owls are the stupidest raptors. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) compared to all of the other raptor birds, which are quite... Like crows. Comparatively quite easy to train. Yeah. Right? Like, they, you can never domesticate them. They'll never like you. They're huh. always at risk of, like, turning on you and, like, pecking your eyes out. Like you. Wow. Like I've said, I'm totally <laughs> right. Um, but they're quite smart. You know, falcons and hawks and stuff yeah. are quite smart. Owls are really stupid. And apparently, wow. according to her, the people training the owls for these movies had to spend weeks and weeks training the owls to like fly from one side of a room to the other. Is it because the owls are stupid or are they willful? Oh, I think it's they're, they're dumb. Damn. I was hoping that they were secretly just feminist. Why are feminist? I mean, dumb and feminist, same thing, am I right, ladies? <laughs> Good God. It's going to be a real fun sound effect after are, that are, one. Are you going to put in hooting every time you mention owls? In every, that time. Past every, conversation? every time. Every oh, single yeah. time. Even yep. when I mention owls? Every right. single time, Neil. Wow. Yeah. Owls, yeah. wolves. Well, cats. Cats. Yep, the night bus. Night bus. <laughs> owls, wolves, cat, night bus. <laughs> a rich sound tapestry. You're welcome, a, Marcel. A cornucopia of sound, dear listeners. <laughs> um, before we move off of props, I also mm-hmm. just wanted to say that I found... Um, Snape's amazing slide machine that he uses in the werewolf lesson yeah. to be really interesting also because it's it's a piece of technology wizard yeah. technology and I think well Lupin's gramophone is unremarked upon though equally bizarre that he has a <laughs> yeah. gramophone I think the slide machine is so interesting because it's not like a normal slide machine mm-hmm. it's this odd magic lantern yeah. sort of device that yeah. I think the idea that wizards would have wizardly teaching Slide tools projectors. is so yeah. interesting. It's great. I know, yeah. it's wonderful. I mean, I assume Lupin just has a gramophone that he uses. Yeah. But with Snape, he 
he has this bizarre. He got that out of the supply closet. Yeah, yeah. wheeled it down the hall. <laughs> taps it. Checked it out. Yep. Checked it write, out from you know, the Snape. Hogwarts IT department. <laughs> Back at three. <laughs> Defense against dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Neil, before we conclude, do you have any other any other observations you noted down that you anything like to... burning or pressing? Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, ju- in, in general, or about props, anything general, about anything. Yeah. One thing that I thought was conclude. really interesting is that this movie had the strange task uh, of time travel movies of having to revisit scenes that we had previously seen, and mm-hmm. the added task of this being a kind of time travel where the time travelers were present in the first version of the mm-hmm. scene that we yeah. saw. And I think that the movie managed to find a film style where the places of Hogwarts were so clear to us mm-hmm. that it was actually relatively easy to you know, show the scene of Hermione punching Draco again with Hermione and Harry now in the foreground mm-hmm. as well and have this actually really make sense. Mm-hmm. I found the kind of film grammar of that quite fascinating because it also the first time you see those scenes has to not be obvious exactly that there are people skulking around and yet still needs to build enough space into the shot and into the scene for it to be possible for there to be skulking so uh hagrid's pumpkin patch Mm -hmm. is so vivid and yet we find out later that it's actually a place where this very elaborate set of chronological doubling over of events is occurring and where we're going to see every scene in that pumpkin patch at least twice yeah. from different mm-hmm. perspectives. Yeah. I, I just thought that was, um, it's a very, I think, unusual thing to see in a film, and I thought it was done fairly well. I feel yeah. like I'm just pretty, it's just a great movie. Just <laughs> a great so would you movie. Say, would you say when it comes down to it, is this your favorite of the Harry Potter movies? I would say so, actually. I, I do actually you love shrunken so. heads. You're racist. Um, you love racism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's because I like it the most as a movie. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can see like it is. It's so intentional, and I mm-hmm. appreciate a really intentional overt work of art. Whether mm-hmm. I like it or not is another question. Yeah, because it kind of yeah. it just made me kind of feel a little icky. Well, actually, I will also say since it's a form of theory that you guys don't often talk about, it also absolutely plays into the canon of film theory as mm-hmm. auteuristic, as mm-hmm. focused on the decisions made by the director. Mm-hmm. We even in this conversation have credited Quaron with things that may not have been his decision. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know who wrote the script mm-hmm. for this movie, or if it yeah. was someone different. But I think there is. A a sense in which I'm even a little suspicious of my praising of the film because I mm-hmm. think it's the most when I say it's the most filmy of the films it's the most film theory canonically classically okay. good of the films yeah. so I, I do think there's a reason to be suspicious of the grounds on which um, you might praise this movie for being filmic mm-hmm. because it, it's certainly good in that very specific way Mm-hmm. And it's very auteur driven, I think. I mean, there's a reason why Quaron is definitely the most auteuristic yeah. of those. And this is also kind of the only Harry Potter movie where you would point to the director as being yeah. particularly significant. After this, mm-hmm. they moved away from directors with a particularly um, well known aesthetic yeah. style and mm-hmm. back into directors with, I mean, the director who they finally settled on for the final, I think, David four Yates? movies. Yeah. yeah. It had Yates. almost no background. Yeah. Right? It's just yeah. they wanted sort of a blank slate director, I guess, when it came down to it. Yeah. yeah. And we'll probably talk in the later episodes about those movies, um, about how they really borrow from Quaron's film, I think, mm. in a lot of really interesting ways. Mm. 
Thanks so much for listening to episode six of Witch Please. You can download all our previous episodes on our website, ohwitchplease.ca, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, thanks to all your kind readings and reviews, we were recently featured on the iTunes new and noteworthy page, and we couldn't be prouder. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our Tumblr, beautifully curated by Jason Purcell. Special thanks also to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? And eternal love for our Twitter-savvy fans. I love giving Marcel the list of Twitter names. <laughs> SM Arbuthnot, All That Matters, Cat Lady Pizza, K Trims, Ashtown1990, I Will Leave Now, K Malosh 2, Proletarian Arts, L.M. Schechter, Aaron Qued, Taji Girl, B.R. Pottercast, Karinasaurus, Mayu's Teapot, Khaleesi's and Amazon's Podcast, Eskeletli, Bookish Spoonie, Shuggins, Terry Lee McGarry, Matt Domville, Dancy M., Katerina Mary, DeBeckel, Mel Doglish, Rachel Babe, Sparrow Swain, Naomi Cooperman, and everyone else who's been retweeting and favoriting, and all our new followers, and oh man, you guys are the best. We also want to uh, say quickly that we are dedicating this particular episode to our dear friend, Karina Source, who is in this very moment wrapping up her MA defense. We're sure she did incredibly well because she is brilliant. So we want to say congratulations, Master Karina Source. Mazel tov. Great work. That's it for this episode. Look forward to our next episode in which I will have a voice again and we will discuss the first half of the fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But until then... Later, witches. (laughs) Beautiful.